Well, that was Joseph's answer. (laughs) And I agree. But in the end, what really matters? A Thoughtful Hope member wrote this question down in response to what is the most burning moral issue of our time. In the end, what really matters? Death. Everything is transient. Music, a fleeting performance. The good news is we can rely on this impermanence. We can bank on the wisdom of the poet-teacher who wrote thousands of years ago in Ecclesiastes, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. We must talk about death, about our finite lives. Everything, everything must end. Even the most permanent natural structures end. Mountains crumble, oceans dry up and move on. So conversations about death are not just something to have with those among us who've lived the longest. We must include our children and our teens, young adults and middle-aged. Our talk of death must not simply be an exchange of words about our mortality, but a comprehensive worldview. Acknowledging death is an ongoing sensibility that informs our life, including death in our day-to-day lives. doesn't need to be morbid. Honestly, including the fleeting nature of life, is the fuel for joy. Knowing something will end, a vacation, a summer romance, a childhood, makes it all the sweeter. Keeping this awareness in mind keeps us real. Let me give you some examples. I asked some friends, tell me the seemingly strangest place or circumstance where you've experienced joy. And uh, several answers included end-of-life moments. During the two weeks I spent alone with my dad, someone said, about three weeks before he died, things were pretty bleak in the nursing home. He hated it there, and so did I. But two moments were pure joy. He was not allowed to move around without assistance, and we spent most of the time sitting in the room listening to baseball games or the news, And one day I announced that we were going on a field trip. I asked the nurses to help me get him in a wheelchair, and I pushed him all around the health center into the main halls of the assisted living area and into the courtyard. We waved at the staff and other patients, pretended to race down the corridors, and ever so briefly forgot that he was scared. Probably a week later, About two days before I had to go, dinner arrived. Dad had really stopped eating much at all. That night, there was whiskey raisin bread pudding. 
Dad took one bite and his eyes lit up. Suddenly, he was himself. (laughs) They didn't burn off the whiskey! (laughs) He devoured it with a look of sheer bliss the entire time. I asked if he wanted more. He nodded eagerly and I bolted to the cafeteria to get more, which he had the next day for breakfast. (laughs) Another friend said, the week before my mother died, she was in the hospital and very disoriented, trying to get out of bed when she was really unable to stand. The morning after her first night there, we found her in restraints. So I decided I was going to insist on spending every night in her room so she wouldn't have to be restrained. When I'd hear her being restless at night and trying to get up, I started talking to her about what a great mom she'd been and all the fun stuff we did when I was a kid. I spent many nights there with her. The day my dad and sister came to sit with her while I went home to sleep, she died while I was gone. But I was so happy to have had the opportunity to spend all that time with her, her last week of life. Can you relate? Do you have similar stories of finding unexpected joy in the presence of death, of finding love and connection in the simplest acts? And not happiness, not a goofy happiness, it's the awareness of death and not not our culture's shallow happiness or positivity or stoicism that allows us to live fully in the time we have. I'm I'm very clear that my experience with my own mother's death is central to my call to being a minister, to being Hope's minister. I just ran across a letter my brother wrote me when I was a senior in college, alerting me to the possibility of my mother's serious illness. He was reporting how her friends were alarmed by her decline on a trip they took together. Sadly, she thought after decades of dieting that she was finally being successful. And as I reread that letter for the first time, 40 years now later, with the sensibility of an adult who better understands my own indebtedness to death, I can forgive myself for being the unformed, immature, young adult who came home to help but was completely ineffectual. I was self-absorbed, 21-year-old. I could not be truly present to her and this sacred event. I remember a home health nurse taking me aside gently to explain, it won't be long now. She was trying to help me with my own impatience and point me to the wisdom this period of time held. And I was not a willing student. So my failure to be a faithful witness of her death became a spark of my calling. 
I've been driven to learn how fully, how to fully live a life that's impermanent, filled by awareness of death. It cannot be any other way. If life is to contain a depth of love and compassion. As a culture, we have amnesia for talking about the central role death plays in life. We have grief illiteracy. Grief illiteracy. It's a term that a Canadian teacher, social worker, and activist, Stephen Jenkinson, coined. He speaks eloquently about the repercussions of this gaping hole in our culture. He spent decades as a leader in the Canadian hospice uh, community and been with thousands as they died. And he explains, we have no language for what really happens, no ability to be a faithful witness, to do justice to how it feels to be dying in our time and place. Grief, illiteracy. Grief is not sadness. There is sadness in grief, indeed. But grief is not exhausted when the sadness goes away. And it does go away, because you can only drag yourself around and rend your clothes for so long. Sadness has a shelf life, but grief, endures. What this lingering half-life of grief does when we pay close attention to it is it ruptures our artificial sense of well-being that prevents us from really living. Just as functional illiteracy interrupts every aspect of a person's life, you know, it makes driving, working, raising children, staying informed, and being engaged in the world desperately difficult. Our grief illiteracy truncates our daily existence in a similar pervasive way. Grief and thinking about death feels like it's unnatural, that it's without an appreciation for our own inevitable death, we forge ahead as consumers of life, avoiding the basic truth that all life must end. So we remove grief and loss from our daily vocabulary. We cease to integrate history and ancestry and the shoulders on which we stand. We avoid weaving the grief of mistakes and loss, change and death into our own stories, like it's something wrong. We're afraid of it in our myths and in, into our collective rituals. Grief is the fountain of wisdom, of tenderness, and emotional depth. Grief is that amniotic fluid for our humanity. It's our recognition that each of our lives is maintained by the death of other things. Death, not symbolic or some hypothetical end, but real human death 
raises up into the light the fundamental realization of how much, how much has to die to keep us alive over our own lifetime. I challenge myself and each one of us to add it up. I dare us to name and bear all those deaths that support us right now. An obvious start are the creatures we eat. Imagine the scores of cows, pigs, chickens, fish who died for our survival. And if you're vegetarian, you're still eating smaller organisms, plants and molds and bacteria, fruits. And our meals aren't the only place to look for death as an important legacy. I live in a house. I live in this great house that's almost a century old. And people from two or three generations ago built the house and have since died. Several families have lived in it, raised families, and passed on. And then before the house was built, the land had animals and humans and insects and microbes traversing it. I'm beholden to that whole community that's gone before. And today, we're sitting in this incredible, beautiful space imagined and created by many who have died. And at the back of our sanctuary is our memorial tree so we can name every single one of them. Pick any aspect of your life and trace it backwards. Find all the ways your work or your hobby or pet or favorite electronic device has been supported by those who've died before you. Think your ideas are original? I'd wager every single thought has been shaped by conversations, writings, comments, books, newspapers, photographs, artwork of millions of people throughout the ages who've come before. If you're a human being, yep, every one of us, you can't get off the hook of your obligation to life. This obligation is death's lesson. When we do not acknowledge death, we begin to act in ways that are wasteful and selfish and unreal. Our policies become warped. Our teachings phony. Our relationships shallow. For instance, our nation's ongoing debates about reproductive rights are not shaped by a profound acceptance of death. Instead, they're deformed by our culture's avoidance of death and loss, focusing only on the viability of every fetus, ignores the whole arc of a life, including death. Black and white thinking ignores that mother-daughter symbiosis, mother-child, I mean, as well as the inevitable interconnections within family and community. By not looking death squarely in the eye and seeing at the core of life, we become simplistic and romantic and, frankly, dishonest about the heartbreaking work of raising a baby 
into a well-fed, clothed, loved, educated, emotionally matured, and productive person. Only when we stamp out our grief illiteracy can our society begin to respond to each stage of life with wholeness and integrity. Being grief literate means we would do everything possible to ensure the lives of every person born are supported by family, neighbors, business, and government. Cultivating authentic grief literacy impacts how we talk to our children about life. We have a critical need for rituals and initiations to bring children into this understanding of grief and death. Yet we're afraid to talk about or show death. We want Jacob to remember Grandma as she was. We don't want Olivia to see Grandpa drooling and frail. Shoving decline and death away is a huge mistake. It's a conspiracy of silence. It robs us of the enormous wisdom of our elders. It makes us walk into war It stops us from having strong rituals to mark the ends and beginnings of different phases of life. When there's no ritual to launch into adulthood, death can't assume its rightful place. I hope, here at Hope, we can provide our children and youth with ceremonies and milestones to mark the end of childhood. This year, the older children are going to be taking a year-long heroic, I call it heroic, a year-long heroic journey that we call coming of age. And it prepares them to leave childhood by equipping them with ideas and experiences grounded in our tradition. And this congregation will witness in the spring when the youth read their credo statements, the culmination of their self-explorations and their reports of what it means to traverse out of childhood into adulthood. Returning to the Canadian Stephen Jenkinson, he explains, an initiation, like coming of age, is a person-making event. A child's job is to be self-absorbed. And for them to become adults, that self-absorption has to be killed off because no one gives up childhood willingly. Childhood is predicated on everything lasting as long as we want it to and nobody who loves us ever leaving. I suspect you can picture a few adults you know, who still cling unknowingly to childhood fantasies of being untouched by loss. They fear age, decline, death, and they're destructive in their ignorance. So Hope's coming of age doesn't dwell on death, yet it's a skillful introduction to each child's personal experiences informed by all that must end. If coming of age and other rituals like it are successful, childhood gets killed off. And each child comes out able to see 
this impermanence in death as central to life, to participate deeply in the indebtedness that is the basis of all real culture. This is not macabre. This is what really matters. Death does not burden our lives. It animates our life. It gives us the chance to live fully, a time to be born and a time to die. In the end, what really matters is this profound acceptance of impermanence, our own and everything around us. We have the chance to say, here's the bad news. It isn't going to last. And here's the great news. It isn't going to last. And we choose how to take that news. We have the opportunity to sink both heels into the ground and say, here I stand. And while I do, there are so many things I can do. The news of our imminent demise is enabling and empowering. It is what matters. May it be so.